0: Grace to end and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for today's uh, sermon is 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 to 25. It's on page 1179 in the, the Church Bibles. Um, it will be helpful if you had it in front of you because we're going to go through it uh, bit by bit, and I want to show you some things in the, the grammar of some of the verses. So that's page 1179, 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 to 25. And um, I've really enjoyed working through Timothy. Um, It's been fun to see what the New Testament has to say to young churches. I think that's that's just been kind of a blast. Like, I I didn't expect to have as much fun doing it. But that being said, we're in another one of those passages that are a little bit awkward to talk about. And the reason is that Paul is talking a lot about... Our relationships, the congregation's relationships to her pastors. And um, I am your pastor, so that makes it sort of awkward to talk about what to do and how this works. But um, on the one hand, we want to preach and teach the entire Council of God. And on the other hand, um, as I was thinking through this, I realized that I won't be all of your pastors I won't be your pastor, most of you, for your whole life. Uh, Some of you will move away, Lord willing, many of you will live longer than me. And so you'll have other pastors, and this is just what we need to do. And so let's jump into the text, starting verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I want to take this part kind of on the the grammatical level first. As always, when Paul talks about elders, when he uses the word elders, this is the word that um, comes into the English language as priest. So he's talking about priests or he's talking about pastors. So I'm just going to substitute pastor every time I read the word elder. Okay, so hear it again. Let the pastors who rule well be considered... Worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And the second thing I have to kind of um, adjust slightly in this verse is this word, especially. As I'm reading the the commentaries and what everybody says about it, they they say that this this word, especially, um, should be understood in the sense of, like, namely. Namely, the ones who preach and teach, or that is, the ones who preach and teach, which then makes the line say something like this Let the pastors who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, namely, those who labor in preaching and teaching. And the reason for this change is twofold. One is the word actually does, can mean namely, or that is, something like that. But but the, the more significant point, is that Paul has been hitting this drum in First Timothy for five chapters, that the, the, the main job, the primary thing that Timothy is to do and to teach his pastors in Ephesus to do is to teach and preach. This is what pastors do. And in fact, the, the New Testament doesn't know of pastors or priests who don't teach and preach which is something that our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Presbyterian tradition get a little bit wrong. They'll look at this and they'll say that there are two different kinds of elders here, ruling elders and teaching elders, but that's just not, there's just one office here. It's the pastor and who's and, and talking about the ones that rule and teach and preach. And this brings us to this other word, rule, which is... Paul using that household manager metaphor that he's been using throughout the book. You can think of it as that either the pastor is like a, a household manager, and this is the house, or as the father of the family, the paterfamilias, if you want, right, of the family, and it's absolutely cringy for me to have to stand here and say to you, the pastor rules the church, right? That's, that's, that's rough, yeah, but it's what it says, And what it points to is something that is really important. That we have a responsibility to each other. You have a responsibility to me and I have a responsibility to you. And it is, it's mutual and it's very, very important. Your responsibility goes like this. This is from Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And then my responsibility to you can be found in James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Meaning that at some point I'm going to need to give an account and the account will go something like this. Were you a good shepherd? Did you laid down your life for your sheep that I gave you? Or did you run away? Now, Paul says that these pastors are are worthy of a double honor. And and what does that mean? We, We talked about last week how the widows... Um, who have given their lives over to the church are to be given an honorarium, right? A salary. And, And most people think that this is not mean, Paul is not saying that pastors should make double what widows make. That's not what he's talking about. He says, instead, something more like, pastor, the double honor is they should get a salary, and then also there should be some respect. And we know that it's talking about a salary because of what Paul goes on to say. He says in verse 18, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. And the first of those two quotes comes from Deuteronomy, right? Do not muzzle an ox when he treads out his grain. And Paul, in his very complimentary, bombastic way, wants to then compare these pastors to oxen, right? And actually, there's something very, very serious here. Paul assumes that pastors should work as hard and doggedly day in and day out uncomplainingly as an ox, which is true. And actually, this is the passage where we get um, actually this, this vestiment from. So this is a stole, and it's the symbol of a pastor's office. Originally, when these uh, started being worn, which is a long, long time ago, there was an additional piece in the back that went down the back. And it was supposed to look like a yoke, right? That goes over the ox's shoulders so that the ox can pull whatever the ox is supposed to pull. With the idea that we're just a bunch of dumb oxen who need to get to work. And that's how we're supposed to think of this. And what's interesting is Paul uses this quote um, again in 1 Corinthians 9 and and he does it in order to talk at length about um, paying a salary. And, And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that he did not take a salary from the Corinthians but that he had a right to, right? He said, I choose not to make use of that right but... He goes on in 1 Corinthians 9.14, he says, but the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should buy their living, should get their living by the gospel. Now I am so here, I'm just gonna be totally frank with you guys. I am so grateful to you that you guys are so generous and so many of you tithe that this is not an issue that we have. And I'm so deeply grateful for that. But I've noticed a trend, especially among some of the younger of my friends um, who are also pastors, not, in, not necessarily in Lutheranism, although some there, um, but all over the city, there's a trend to try and make pastors intentionally bivocational, which means um, the, the church pays them uh, not their enti- what they need to live, but something less than that, and then encourages them to go get a job with the idea that they then have a foot kind of in both worlds, both in the church and in the world. in a a working way. And I honestly think that this passage goes against that. I think that that's not what Paul has in mind here. And the second quote that he uses here, the laborer deserves his wages, uh, affirms this, but there's something actually far more interesting about that second quote um, that has nothing to do with like what it actually means. Anybody know where that quote comes from? Anybody recognize it? The laborer deserves his wages it's not the Proverbs. I thought it was two. It's from the gospel of Luke. Now this is, this is, when I read this and I was, and, and I was reading the commentaries and I was like, oh, I can't believe, I, I, I did not know that Paul quoted Luke ever. Do you realize what this means? It means first that like Paul had access either to Luke's notes or his gospel, or even better, as Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, he's like, oh, what's that quote that Jesus said? Luke, remember that quote Jesus said about laborers? And Luke's like, oh, the one about laborers deserve their wages? And he's like, yeah, that's the one. And like literally writes it down like that. And I think that that's just so neat. But there's something else here too, and it, it's, it's striking. That whole sentence, read it again. The whole sentence says, for the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves its wages. Which means that Paul understands Luke's writings to be the scriptures. And um, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but Peter says the same thing about Paul's letters. He says that Paul's letters are also scripture, which means that even though this is the first generations of Christians, as they are preaching and evangelizing and writing these letters, they, or at least Paul and Peter, understand that the Holy Spirit is working through them as they're writing those letters to do what he needs to do in the world. Literally, they understand that he is inspiring these letters that he's writing right now, which I don't understand how you do that. How do you choose the next word, right, that goes down on the paper if you understand yourself to be writing the scriptures? Let's go on to verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Do not admit a charge against a pastor except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And Paul turns his attention from those pastors who are doing a good job and deserve appreciation to those who are sinning. And he says, do not admit a charge except for two witnesses. And um, traditionally, we have always said that there are three kinds of charges that can remove a man from being a pastor. If he engages in gross immorality, gross meaning big, gross meaning plain to everybody, if he commits adultery, if he uh, murders somebody, obviously, right? if he steals $100,000 from the church, this is considered gross immorality, and that's one of the reasons that we can remove somebody from office. The second reason is false teaching, and that's probably what's going on here at Ephesus, if a pastor starts teaching something that goes against the Bible, obviously, that goes against uh, little, oh, orthodox classic Christianity that, in our case, goes against, in this congregation, in our pastors, goes against the Book of Concord that he swore to teach, that's a reason for removing him from office. And the third reason for removing him from office would be um, an inability or a refusal to do the job. So... Gross immorality, um, false teaching, or refusal to do the job. And, And Paul says, what happens if a pastor does one of these things? Paul insists that you shouldn't listen to an accusation of that, of one of those things, unless there are at least two witnesses involved. And, and I thought it was interesting because it doesn't say don't convict and then kick him out of office if there's not two witnesses. He says don't even receive, don't even entertain an a, a, a accusation like that unless you have two witnesses. And, and this rule is a rule that is not particular to the Bible, even though you can find it in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, it says not just pastors, but anybody. You shouldn't, enter, you shouldn't uh, convict somebody of, of a major crime unless there are two witnesses. And the purpose of this is to make sure that the accused gets a fair shake. That no one is unjustly accused. And if you come at this from the angle of like worrying about um, some false accusation, this is a really nice rule. It means that a single person with an ax to grind cannot out of like vengeance go and absolutely destroy your life or destroy your career, right? Destroy your work, your ministry. but some of us have actually been hurt by a pastor. And some of us might worry that a rule like this might make it so that somebody could get away with something, right? If there's not two witnesses, and um, but somebody does something really bad, might he get away with it if there's not two witnesses? And Luther actually was pretty concerned about this too. Luther, um, as he's thinking about this, says, look, here's, here's how this goes. If there aren't two witnesses and the guy gets away with whatever he did, I'm not bothered. Really, Luther? Yeah, he says, no, I'm not bothered because that man will answer to God. And it will be far worse for him than if we caught him. Actually, Paul goes on to say the same thing. This is in verse. jumping ahead to verse 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to the judgment, meaning you find out about those sins prior to the judgment on the last day, but he goes on and says, but the sins of others appear later. And again, I'm just going to say this very simply. That's even worse for the person who does that. Paul goes on. Okay, so what if there are there is sin, There are two witnesses, and there's an accusation, and then the pastor persists in sin. Look at verse 20. "As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Woof. That's harsh. I don't know if anybody's ever been in a congregation where this has happened, but that's really rough. Why do you think he says this? Basil the Great, writing in the 300s, um, put it in probably the most precise, most um, clear way. Basil said, quote, "...feigned kindness, faked kindness to the wicked is a betrayal of truth." And an act of treachery to the community and a means of habituating yourself to be indifferent to evil. And I think that what Paul is concerned about is he knows that when somebody, especially somebody in leadership, does something bad, we will be tempted to bury it or to cover it up so that the outside world doesn't see it and think less of us. That's what our temptation will be. And Paul says we have to do exactly the opposite. In fact, it's a refusal to publicly rebuke that will absolutely hurt the church worse. The church that refuses to discipline is not a healthy church. And um, one of the guys I was reading kind of put this nicely. He said, there are three really important reasons why we have to do this kind of public discipline with our leaders. And the first is for the honor of Jesus's church as it is. We have to to, um, keep ourselves from appearing either to the world or to our own people like what we are is a a conspiracy or a club that that harbors evil people and and then rewards them. We cannot let that be who who the world and we ourselves think we are. The second reason for exercising this kind of discipline is for the purity of the church itself. Paul's the one that says a little leaven leavens a whole lump. And the image here is a, is a big ball of dough that you're going to make into bread, and you put a little bit of yeast in it, and then you work it in, and the yeast spreads all through the dough. If Luke was here, he probably would have corrected Paul and said it's more like an infection than yeast, right? An infection is something that is in your body that if something doesn't stop it and kill it, will spread through your whole body, and so we've got to cut it out. And the third reason to exercise this kind of public discipline is to encourage the fallen to repent and the unfallen to stand strong, which is what Paul actually says here. He says, so that the rest may stand in fear. And there's a couple of things I have to point out about that phrase, the rest will stand in fear. The first is, I don't think Paul is redefining fear the way I hear so frequently, fear in the church redefined. Paul is not thinking of fear of God here as like awe of God or respect for God. He means fear in the plain dictionary sense, so that the rest may fear punishment, so the rest may fear the consequences of their sin, which is real fear. And I think the second thing that's important about this is Paul thinks that this kind of fear that a public discipline of a leader like that would have, Paul thinks that that kind of fear is a good and healthy thing. Fear is fear, and fear of God is good is something that if you read the Old Testament, if you read the New Testament, you'll find just gets hit over And over and over again when you read the Bible you cannot come away without realizing that God hates hates evil he hates it and that he does not and will not let it go on forever and that his wrath breaking out against persistent unrepentant sin is a real live possibility for me and for you like that's a possibility And therefore, it is a good thing for you and me to fear the Lord. And as soon as we know our sin, as soon as we are aware of our sin, repent. And if you have any question about whether or not that kind of fear of God is a good thing, this is where the Proverbs and the Psalms just come roaring through. I'll read to you a couple of passages. Job 28 says, uh, God said, Behold, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil, that is understanding. Proverbs 10 says the fear of the Lord prolongs your life. Proverbs 14 says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Proverbs 19 says the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Isaiah 33 says the fear of the Lord is God's treasure. Proverbs 14, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. Psalm 112, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 128, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And Proverbs twenty three seventeen: do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. And always means always. Because you and I need the fear of the Lord as long as sin is a possibility for us. Somebody might say, and I've heard somebody say this, um, yeah, but 1 John 4.18 says that perfect love casts out all fear. And that's absolutely true. But until you have perfect love, as long as you're a sinner, as long as I'm a sinner, it is good and healthy that we have the fear of the Lord. Because that fear will lead us to repent. And then once you have learned to fear the Lord and repented, you can receive his full and complete forgiveness that he wants so badly to give you. And what could be better than that, right? Let's keep going. Verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus... And of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. These rules, right? The rules that Paul has just laid down, that if two witnesses bring an accusation against a pastor, it is uh, presented and he persists in it, then you publicly rebuke him in front of the congregation. And Paul is so serious about doing this that he invokes God. He invokes God's name. Now, he wants it done in a particular way, right? He does not want you to do it either with prejudice, right? Where you um, assume, like, you, you don't like the person, so you go forward with it because you don't like the person. Nor does he want you to do it with partiality, where you do like the person, and so you avoid the public rebuke. Because it doesn't matter if the person is a friend or an enemy. It doesn't matter if he's on your side or on the other side. It doesn't matter if he's doing a great job or he's absolutely mucking up the church. Paul insists you have to do what is just and you have to do what is right. But then he he has a practical question he he has to answer. Once you've done something like that, what's next? And the answer is in verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And he's talking about ordination here, right? Paul says, when you have had to remove a man, don't panic and quickly ordain the next breathing human being. Don't do that. Because if it turns out that he is evil, you'll be responsible for the guy you ordained. And um, when, I, when I do my reading, there's always things that I wish I could tell you guys about, and usually I have to cut them for either time, or because they're not apropos, but sometimes you get these stories that are just kind of, they're expressed in a funny way that you and I wouldn't express it, and usually it's Luther, this time it's Chrysostom. John Chrysostom in the early 300s says, "Um, this is like if there was a crazy person running around in the streets, and I gave him a sword, and then he went and destroyed something, you all would hold me responsible. And I'm like, oh, that's a good imaginative exercise, John. Thank you. I appreciate that. But, but the, point, the point is right. This is what he says, right? Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. And when Paul writes the word pure, I love this. It reminds him, all of a sudden, of um, something he's been meaning to say to Timothy. And uh, it's the word pure, there's there's some sort of a connection in Paul's mind between the word pure and the idea of fasting. And, And Paul remembers that he's been meaning to tell Timothy to stop fasting so much because it's hurting his health, right? Fasting's great, fasting's good, it's a very godly discipline, but it is wrong to fast so excessively that you harm your body. And it sounds like what Paul is saying is, Because Timothy is fasting, he's only drinking water and this is messing up his guts. So Paul says, knock it off. And it's like one of the sweetest little parentheticals in the whole Bible, right? He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Oh yeah, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And it's like, like a it's like almost like a a post-it note he's written and just stuck it on like oh and by the way p.s. I forgot to tell you stop drinking just water right and then Paul goes back to his main thought in verse 24 the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to the judgment but the sins of others appear later so also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden Paul is encouraging Timothy to be discerning. If it's obvious that somebody has a a, a sin, then do not hurry up and ordain them. But Paul is also recognizing Timothy's limitations because Timothy cannot judge hidden and private sins. He can only look at what is visible. He can only see what he can see. But, says Paul, it is safe to leave the hidden sins to God Because unlike Timothy, the Lord looks on the heart, right? Which is a quote from 1 Samuel. And no one can hide their sin from God. On the last day, on judgment day, those sins that we think we can hide from God, they will be known. Jesus just goes after this hammer and tongs. This is Luke 8. Jesus says, Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Luke 12. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And then the author of Hebrews makes this kind of even more graphically obvious. No creature is hidden from God's sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And Ecclesiastes 12 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So let me just say this to you straight and up front. If you're hiding a sin either from other people or from yourself, which is at least more frequently in my my life, that's what I'm doing. I'm hiding it from myself. Then the Proverbs offer advice to you. This is Proverbs 28. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. If you are hiding a sin, Recognize this is God calling to you and repent of that sin. Confess it and obtain mercy. Now, I know some of you well enough to know that I can say something like that, and you'll think of something from the past that you have confessed and you have been forgiven for. And when I say something like this, there's a nagging worry that goes something like this. Okay, but like those things in the past that I've confessed, what about them? Will they show up on judgment day? Will I have to stand exposed for all the things that I know full well were evil and I have repented of so many times, will they show up on judgment day? And the answer is no. No, they won't. How can I be sure? Because anybody who trusts In the forgiveness-winning death and resurrection of Jesus does not have to worry about those. It's Romans 8, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus was condemned so that you could not be This is what he says to Nicodemus in, in the gospel reading from today. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Why? Because there is nothing to condemn in the sight of God. This is one of my favorite, my absolute favorite things about the gospel. Isaiah 43 puts it in a particularly nice way. The blood of Jesus blots out your transgressions. This is what Isaiah 43, 25 says. I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And the image there that's being described is as if somebody was taking notes on a, on, a, on a piece of, um, like, cloth paper, right? And then they decide they don't want that anymore, so they get a bowl of water, and they dip the paper. This is how they used to erase things. They dip the paper into the water until all the ink is washed off and gone. That's what blot out means. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I will forget them he says. Psalm 103 puts it a little bit differently. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us, he can never get back to them. They're gone. Micah 7.19 puts it this way. He says, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our sins, our iniquities under feet. So first he stomps them. And you will cast out, I'm sorry, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, right? And then the image is he takes your sin and he throws it into the sea. And I have this experience. I've used this story before. And I can't remember with who though, so I'm going to tell it again because I'm getting old. Um, I had this experience when I was in like, uh, maybe I was like 12 years old and I had just gotten a brand new pair of glasses. And we went to up to, I think, Lake Havasu. JJ will correct me at some point. Maybe it was Lake Powell. And we were playing on a boat and jumping into the lake and swimming. And my father said to me, you should take off your glasses before we get out onto the lake. And I said, no, I won't be able to see anything if we do that. And immediately we got to the place we were gonna swim and I jumped into the water with my brand new glasses on. And so what happened? they hit my foot as they went down into the lake and they were gone. <laughs> Ain't nobody ever going to find those. And that's what Jesus does with your sin. All the way to the bottom of the, to the, bottom of the sea so that, Jeremiah 31 says, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. So that when you show up to the judgment seat, the only things that you will have with you, the only things from this life that will follow you there are your good works. That's what Paul says. Look at the last, very last verse. So also good works are conspicuous. Even those that are not cannot remain hidden. It means that if you do something good, right? If you forbear to say something that you want to say, that's going to be cutting, or if you are kind and nobody sees it, or you pick up the slack and nobody recognizes it, if you do something good, even if nobody else ever finds out, God knows. And he will reward you. And he will bring it into the light. And he will make it known on the last day. Amen. Amen. And the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.